The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Lidos. At Lidos, we believe today's complex health challenges call for revolutionary problem solving. From digital transformation to life sciences, Lidos makes the world safer, healthier, and more efficient. On November 6th, the Washington Post Live hosted Veterans in America, an event focusing on issues facing today's 18 million veterans. Retired Staff Sergeant David Bellavia's story is one of valor and uncommon heroism. His actions on November 10th, 2004, in the Second Battle of Fallujah saved countless lives. This past June, he became the first living American to receive the Medal of Honor for actions in the Iraq War. In this segment, we'll hear his story. Let's listen. I'm Libby Casey with The Washington Post. Hello again, and I'm pleased to introduce David Bellavia, the first and only living Medal of Honor recipient who served uh, in the Iraq War. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. I want to talk about that day, November 10th, 2004. But first, let's go back to the basics. Why did you enlist in the Army? I mean, I think there's, uh, everyone has, you know, 15 reasons why they joined the Army. For me, uh, I was uh, home from college. I had a home invasion. Um, these two guys, they got, uh, for whatever reason, they found my parents' house. My, my mom just had uh, some neck surgery, so she was convalescing. My dad was taking care of her. and. These guys just busted through the house, and I just remember I held a, a shotgun, and I couldn't. I I, I was I was afraid. I I, I was scared of. Um, you know, I just I, I didn't know what I was doing. I was a I was naive, and thankfully no one was hurt. They took their stuff. They went away. They went to jail. Everything worked out great. But I remember my dad looking at me. And just thinking, uh oh, you know, this this one needs to cook a little longer. You know, he's not quite ready, and uh, and so I, I went to the army and said, you know, I don't, I want to be, uh, I want to be that person that is able to, you know, be able to look at at the people in his family and say, I got you. How old were you when that happened? I was far too old. I think it was like 22, 23. Wow. Yeah, and but it was it was one of those things where you just. You think to yourself, why? You know, what what is it going to take for me to be able to, you know, get to that next level and uh, become a man? So you enlisted, and uh, you saw a lot. I mean, you were in Kosovo before you were deployed to Iraq. A very tight turnaround, too. Very tight turnaround. I'll tell you, Kosovo um, was actually a worse to me that deployment because there's really not a lot of anything going on. There's a lot of opportunity to get in accidents, a lot of opportunity to, uh, you know, just get complacent. My leadership in the 1st Infantry Division took that opportunity to get us ready for combat in Kosovo. So we're doing, you know, 12-hour patrols, making sure everyone's safe and training for combat at the same time. That's really the reason why we were so effective in the war. I want to remind you, if you have questions for Mr. Bellavia, you can send them to us on Twitter. You can use the hashtag PostLive, whether you're here in the room or watching online, and we can uh, give them to you and you can answer them. Yeah, we, set the scene for us. It's 2004. It's fall of 2004. Um, this is often thought of as the second battle of Fallujah. That's how people talk about it. Um, 
I want you to remind us what it was like at that time, because it's been described as some of the worst urban combat since the Vietnam War. What was it like there? Um, you know, having never served in Vietnam, uh, I had served in Diala province before that. Uh, we did some time in Ajaf. We had elements of our task force go out to Mosul. So we were, because of our Bradley fighting vehicles, uh, basically tanks with infantry in the back of them, we, this is really conducive to that urban fight in Iraq at the time. The wheels were coming off the cart. Uh, the insurgency was really getting strong. Fallujah in April. The Marines handled their business, uh, but the civilian population was there. And it was just, it, it was an information operations war. And if the Middle East was looking at pictures of injured uh, or you know, killed civilians, uh, it, it wasn't helping the mission at all. So when the Marines pulled back, uh, we basically said, we're coming. Uh, we gave those, uh, the people of Fallujah six months to clear out. Uh, really, we were waiting 15 years ago today, this is the time that this happened, we were waiting on the presidential election. It was Bush Kerry. And we did not want, the, the leadership did not want the invasion before the election. So essentially between Halloween and the day that we kicked off the Battle of Fallujah, it was just sitting around waiting to get the word. But we were well uh, prepared for close quarter combat. This was going to be, you know, 10 meter shots. Uh, you're opening a door, it's the OK Corral. And um, it's psychologically debilitating. Um, and, and you have to get into those young people's heads and remind them, I got you, we're going to do this together. And I was just blessed to have incredible soldiers of 2-2 infantry in the Army. And this was a Marine Corps fight. We were just there to help. It, it, was, not some, it was not an Army-led mission. The Marines in Anbar did uh, incredible things. This is Operation Phantom Fury. Yes, ma'am. So, November 10th, it's your birthday. <laughs> Tell right. us about that day. It was uh, what had happened at the breach uh, on the day that Fallujah started. Uh, we got through with no problem. Uh, it was a big berm that we uh, that was a railroad berm, and we busted through it. Marines had trouble getting through, so they all used our breach. And, and what ended up happening was it set the battle plan off. So while we punched in, expecting everyone to be to our right going into the fight, uh, it took a couple days for them to catch up. We found ourselves in Fallujah and pretty much surrounded and having to fight to where we were, you know, to our, uh, our, our, you know, our mission was to get to Highway 10 and then come back and start over. And we did that day after day after day until everyone got uh, on the same side. We found ourselves uh, in a house. Uh, they had locked in about 10 bad guys in a block. They squared them off with tanks and said, you know, we got to get these bad guys. Um, you're going room to room, door to door. It's so weird, the senses in a house fight. It's not about what you see because you're tired and you're hungry. It's often not what you hear because your ears are shot out. It's smell. It's like I smell that a person has slept here. I smell a person who hasn't bathed and, and I smell we haven't bathed either, but you, you can tell the senses that you use to, I, you know, I remember going in, Fallujah had been bombarded. Dust was everywhere. Um, the food was rotted. P families just left. You could just see that they took their belongings and just got out. Um, and then you would see like an orange cup on a table. Everything else has dust and debris 
and a, just a fresh orange cup. And it just, everything in your body just is like someone's here, right? A piece of cheese where everything else is rotted and smells horrible. And there's just like a plate with a piece of cheese and bread. And you're just like, you know, here it is. Um, it just changes everything. You, you just, you're in a, a primal state of evaluating threat. Where could a person hide? Where can a person be? And uh, how do I get to them before they get to us? How do you prepare for that? You, know, you were talking about getting ready, even back in Kosovo, really getting, getting ready. And you talked about you know, how you get in the, the, the psychological preparation mode. But how did you prepare for this? My whole thing was I, I never uh, had been to war before. I, I didn't know uh, how to do it. I, I read everything I could. I talked to as many Vietnam guys as I possibly could. Um, you really have to make yourself uncomfortable every day. You have to, 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 to get ready for war. You just have to physically, it's the one thing to just be excruciatingly tired and just bone weary. People forget that when you've got bodies that have been out for a while. There's a ton of bacteria. Everyone is sick. You can't spend three days in a city where you're, uh, you know, fighting thousands of bad guys and not get some sort of, uh, you know, virus. So you've got head colds and sore throats and temperatures and diarrhea and you name it. And you're tired and you're hungry. And the other thing I realized was that when you exchange fire in close quarter, in that region of the world, there's no drywall. It's all concrete, and those rounds are just ricocheting everywhere. No one is unhurt in a house fight. Everyone's got a scrape, a graze, whatever. Um, so it just shows that if someone leaves the battle, they can't fight anymore. And, and that's just, to me, it just shows the spirit of, uh, of, of the men and women that, that we had over there in Fallujah. You're a squad leader. Yeah. So. What does that mean in a situation like that? What's your role to protect and to help and to lead? So I was, I joined after college. I was older. Uh, I had a son. I was, uh, you know, married. It, to me, they were my surrogate children, right? I, I looked at them. They were 18. I was... And you were old. You were 29. I was a 29, yeah, grizzled <laughs> veteran, you know? Um, I would check my stocks in the morning and, and uh, drink my... No, but, but uh, these were 18-year-old kids and... Um, I never, I learned many, many lessons in Fallujah. I hated journalists. I, I couldn't stand them. I met an embedded reporter who completely changed my view as to the importance of nobody knows what's happening in the war unless you tell them. So nobody knows our experience unless there's a vessel, a filter there to let them know what's happening. The other thing, I never thought, what, what is a chaplain doing? You know, you want to go pray, go pray. I, I got stuff to do. You know, I, I don't need that. Um, I found love on the battlefield, and I, it, it blew me away. The war is, is horrible. It, 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 all the cliches, you know, you've all seen the movies or have experienced it yourself. It, that's obvious. But there's love, and people do what they do. We're all different. We all vote different. We love different. We worship different. We don't agree on anything. We're like every other cross-section of America, but we put all of our differences aside. And if you're willing to be there with me, I don't care anything about where you're from or who you are. You are my blood. I'm gonna bring you home. And uh, when you see people 
bleed for each other, sacrifice for each other, it is impossible to be victimized by that experience. I mean, I, I, don't, I hope nobody sees combat ever in their life, but I hope everyone has a moment in their life when they realize, my God, this is so much more worthy than me, and this guy over here that I don't even know or get along with is, is as important as, as my own family. It's beautiful. You've been telling this story a lot because you just received the Medal of Honor in June and you've been on the road, it sounds like, constantly since then. Uh, yeah. But, but can you tell us a little more about, and we'll hear about what's going on for you right now in a few moments, but can you tell us a bit more about, about that, that moment and that, that house that you went in and, and why that was such a pivotal moment it's for so, your squad? It, it, it's so confusing. Um, you know, you think about the, just the noise of, of just bullets going. You know, we're, we're shooting at people who have uh, essentially rigged a house with kerosene and plastic explosives. The back of your mind, you're thinking, shouldn't we just all, I mean, if we run, we're going to get shot. If we stay, we're going to blow up. What, what, what's the point here? And it just seems like there's a, a clock that goes off in your head. And, you know, the, the littlest things can, when it's that close quarter, it's that personal and you're making eye contact and you're having a, literally a screaming at the other side and they're screaming back, you, you realize that the littlest things can affect that battle and it's confidence. You go from, I'm Thor, no one can defeat me, to I should have gone to dental school, this was a horrible choice, what am I doing? You know, I have no business doing this. And, and you just are constantly vacillating between the ebbs, the lows of high, and, and with the machine guns firing back, you just, was that a bullet? Mm. Oh, I, at one point I thought I was hit, and I was like, I can handle this. That's not that bad. I thought being shot was gonna be horrible, and I can do it. Oh my God, I have so much confidence. And then I saw it was a, like a piece of wood in my arm. And I was like, oh no, if I can't handle a splinter, you know what I mean? This is, this is, this is gonna be a long day. You, you're, you're constantly, uh, you, you don't, you're, you're just trying to prepare yourself for what's gonna go down. And the thing is, is that, you know, this is one day. My guys were incredible the day before and the day after and every one of those guys, I would not be here today if it wasn't for uh, Alpha Company 2-2 and 3rd Platoon and Lawson and we lost Sean Sims and Stephen Falkenberg and Ed Iwan. That's your company commander, executive officer, and sergeant major, okay? Think about, you know, the, the leadership, young lieutenants that have to go and do their job two levels up. That's traumatic loss, that's sudden loss, and it's close quarter. Um, it just, I, I love those men, and uh, I really appreciate having them in my life. How did you escape injury, major injury? I mean, you well, were, you, and you, we've heard a little bit about your story, but firefight, hand-to-hand -hand combat even. I mean, there were injuries, but I don't consider, you know, I, you, I've been hanging out with guys that have lost limbs and, you know, have those, those purple hearts, they earn every single day. Now, this is one day of my life, and, um, but the Purple Heart is something that it, it, these guys live with all the time, and I have world respect. I have no idea. That's the awkwardness of this whole thing. You know, it just, why me? Why, why what, do I, what am I supposed to do with this now? You get this gift, you get this, this you know, lightning strike uh, that you're just alive. I, all I wanted to do was just come home and, and, and just be a dad. And uh, everything else to me was, um, you know, we don't fight for awards. 
You know, you know what I mean? It, it, it's impossible to, to make that a goal. But, um, but you know, now that I'm old, <laughs> I look back and I think, you know, maybe there are injuries that we just didn't identify at the time and they come up over time. Without the Vietnam generation, we would be all lost in the forest. The Vietnam men and women have treated us so amazing and they didn't get that at all. They, they've loved us and protected us from a lot of what they went through themselves. And they're beautiful. Please clap for Vietnam vets, yeah. Without, without that Vietnam generation putting their arm around us saying, you're gonna be all right, I, I don't know if we would be all right. So we're very uh, appreciative of those guys. So this evaluation process that happened, um, it started under Ash Carter under the Obama administration. There was like a let, let's open the books and let's evaluate award recipients and, um, and figure out, uh, first of all, why there have been no Medal of Honor recipients prior to you from the Iraq War. Um, and there have been some elevations. Yours, yours was uh, uh, chosen as well. Um, you were the only living recipient of this from the Iraq War. Uh, I'm actually, um, I probably right now could name you seven people that are worthy of the Medal of Honor from Fallujah alone. Mm -hmm. Seven, right there. Uh, I don't know what this, I don't, this award is so cloak and dagger secret, you don't even know. The only, I found out that I was nominated from a journalist, but, but it's, you know, it's, for a while you feel like Susan Lucci, you know, you're nominated for 27 years and then you're just kind of like, it's an honor to be nominated, you know, that's, that's what the deal is. I didn't know anything about the award, I didn't know what it was. Out of the blue, I get a phone call that, you know, someone wants to talk about the war and honestly, I, you know, I called an attorney because I, I was like, what do you want to know? What, what, are you, what are you asking about? You know, I'm not comfortable talking to a complete stranger. Where, where is this going? And uh, it's just such a secret process. I don't get it, but it's exhausting. Mm. And they go into every nook and cranny and every detail. And honestly, I was lucky enough to have a journalist there that filmed it and had, you know, I, I'm not sure uh, what process that played in it, but it was, um, you know, Michael Ware from Time Magazine was a part of that story. He didn't cover the story. He was in the house. He, he, he did that with Scott Lawson and myself. So uh, it was pretty, uh, pretty crazy. So initially you were awarded the Silver Star. Yes. Um, and of course, President uh, Trump um, gave you the medal uh, this past summer. In Afghanistan, there are 13 honorees from, from, from that conflict. And I, I, I'm just wondering if you have a sense of why there are 13 living honorees from Afghanistan and only one yet from Iraq. Do you think there should still be a continued evaluation process? I think it's, I mean, we're being frank here, right? Just you and me talking? Just you and me. All right. <laughs> we made a huge mistake when we made good wars and bad wars. And a lot of Iraq veterans wear this chip on our shoulder that we don't deserve. I don't, I wouldn't know a weapon of mass destruction if it hit me in the head, okay? I didn't choose to go to war. Um, if you gave me a choice and a vote, I would have stayed home. And I would have been with, with people that I care about for the rest of my life. My country asked me to serve, I served. That's what I did. When we came home and everyone started, I remember going up to someone when I came back and, and I said, well, where'd you serve? 
and uh, Afghanistan was like, thank you very much for your service. When I said Iraq, they were like, I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. That's garbage. That's garbage. That's shameful. Um, those are the, we don't put policy above the valor of a generation. And I believe that there are a lot of people that wanted to forget Iraq and just put it away. Put it in a jar and let's say never again. Mm -hmm. Let's be slow to war, which we should be. But let's never speak of this again. And I think a lot of people, a lot, especially folks that lost their lives, are not able to, um, uh, you know, their families, because of the conflict they served in, I believe, you know, for whatever reason that, that came into the process. And that's what, do you, what do you think should be done to, to change that? I, hey, listen, I'm, I don't know what power, you know, I don't know what I could do with this thing, right? But if I'll make the coffee right now, let, let's, get the, let's get the guys back in the room because, I mean, how can you tell me that Rafael Peralta, who jumps on a grenade, is not worthy of, of the Medal of, of Honor? How can you tell me that Brad Castle, a first sergeant who, you know, is shot repeatedly, um, is not, there's a, 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 so many Marines, soldiers, um, it's awkward, but I, I'm a very, I'm proud to have served with the men and women I served in Iraq. I'm proud of my, my fight, and uh, I'm proud of who we are when we come home. Judge us on the battlefield, but judge us when we come home, the fathers, the, the, the wives, the, the partners, the educators, what we're doing here is far more important than what we did in the war. David, who did you have at the ceremony at the White House this summer? We heard that big cheer go up after right. President Trump placed the medal okay. on you. Okay, so this is the coolest part of the entire thing, right? You're nervous, you're freaking out. I made the mistake of putting a tobacco product in my mouth during the ceremony, and I, I was told that that is a no-no. I mean, um, it's kind of a big moment. I believe the president was like, uh, just don't spit on the floor. And I was like, all right, <laughs> we'll do it. So when, when everyone's looking at it, they're like, were you getting emotional? I was actually trying not to swallow dip juice is what I was trying not to do. That, that was happening. But I brought uh, 32 of my, my guys, my, my family, um, and Gold Star families that we lost. My interpreter um, that just became an American citizen was there. And the coolest part of that entire, I don't remember a thing about the ceremony. When I asked the president, can I bring my guys up? And I was allowed to bring, and it was, I don't know, I don't think he knew there was 32 of them because it was like a clown car opened up and these guys just started funneling out. The whole stage fills up with my guys and in that moment that was, we were young again. We were together again. And it was the most beautiful experience of my life. I, I really, uh, I appreciate having that opportunity and having those guys there and, you know, bringing them in the White House is pretty awesome. So. You've only had this uh, around your neck now since June, and it sounds like you've been traveling nonstop. Like, what do you see as your role right now? Because, and how do you see this as like, because when I was talking to you before we came on, you, you're sort of very humble about it, but you seem to recognize that there is a larger symbol that, that, yeah. you, that you now literally wear. So when most of these Vietnam guys that I talk to all the time, you know, Audie Murphy was alive. There were 370 recipients when they received their awards during the Vietnam War. We have 71. You know, just by looking at time and statistics, in 15 years, we're going to have under 20 recipients out there. Are we really going to be, with, with technology and drones, are we going to have sustained combat in the future? Are we going to have, you know, tens of thousands of troops invading cities and doing... I'm not sure America is, is really has the stomach for another 18-year conflict so are, is this award going to go away? 
you know, um, and, and ultimately that's the goal, that we don't have war, so it would be a positive thing. I just think that when you get something like this, uh, people tend to want to say, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to go, you know, become a spokesman for a company? Or are you going to go, you know... Uh, You've run for Congress before, so, like, I did. would you run for office before? I'm right, not, right. So, so now the idea is, well, now that you have the award, mm -hmm. now you really understand trade. You know what I mean? And that's just not the case. I, I don't... I, I want to... I want people to experience the service. I, I don't care if it's in uniform, if it's out of uniform. I come out... Uh, from the White House, I go to New York, and I enter Gay Pride Week in New York. And, and, and I'm literally standing in my uniform in the middle of Gay Pride Week, and I'm thinking, you know, what? I don't know what's going to happen here. Do the, you know, everyone said thank you. Everyone hugged me, shook my hand, and everyone said, go kick ISIS's ass, right? That's America. It, we're so divided and everyone wants to talk about what separates us. What brings us together is this country, what it stands for, and the defense of it. And I want to go to every aspect of this country and tell young people, you want to go to college, you want to better yourself, do it in the United States Army. Make your country better, make your community better, and we'll fix this thing. You know, it's not going to be done in Washington or your state house. It's going to be done, you know, in your neighborhood and in your community. You are working for the Army now, essentially, um, doing just that. That's right, I'm going everywhere. Uh, rodeos and, you know, just had a BMX biker jump over my head yesterday. So hopefully we, we raise some awareness of the Army doing that, you know? You know? What's your message to, to young people? I mean, how, how do you talk to them? Because I'm sure they want to hear your story. And I guess I have two questions. How do you talk to them about such a graphic story? We don't. First of all, you don't? We don't. Uh, first of all, I want them to touch this. I want as many people to, to see this thing as possible so that it's not foreign. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other thing is we're just trying to normalize service and say, you know, we do this because you're worth it and we do this because we love. Americans have taught the world how to dream and we've taught the world how to fight and we do both of those things because we love. Uh, we, you know, are, are surrounded by brothers and sisters that we care about, but more importantly, we care about our, our citizens, we care about our country. And when we come home, we just want the opportunity to continue to serve. Yeah, but that dedication got you into an incredibly dangerous, terrifying situation um, where, where some of your friends were killed. I mean, that, the Second Battle of Fallujah was such an intense fight, and you are an exemplary soldier of someone who survived it, fought it, lived it. Um, is it hard to look a young kid in the eye and say, yeah, you might want to sign up for this too? You know, uh, no. Because um, what, what I, when I saw, the, when I see these young people, a lot of these guys uh, and girls are, you know, they didn't have the home life that I had. They don't have two parents. They don't, what they're, what they're screaming for is, you know, our colleges right now, there's a mindset that we're trying to breed perpetual adolescence, right? Everyone wants to stay as young as you possibly can forever. You want an adult coloring book? Let's do it, right? Keep the band, you're 42, you want the band, get it back together, keep playing, be Peter Pan. And the world is run by adults and the military crushes adolescents and we make adults and we make responsible people and we make people that have very broad shoulders that can handle the world. And when I see these young people, I want them to enjoy their youth as long as they can. But when they're ready to make a difference in the world, the United States Army is going to open the door to all of those opportunities where they can use those God-given gifts 
be around different people, be around different folks of, of all different backgrounds and find a way to get things done. We are missing that in this society and uh, the military breeds that. So you don't plan to run for office anytime soon again. So you, I don't, you ran as a Republican in New York. Right, uh, and I just, to me, it's what are you voting for? You're voting for the award. So you think it's really different now? Like you think it's that totally now that different. you've got it around your Well, we have to be accountable. I can't just say one thing and, and, and do another. I, you know, that's what people do in this town, right? I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that. I don't want to be that. I want to, I want to be accountable. I want to be, I am a, 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 a soldier. It sounds like you, you view yourself differently now that you've received the Medal of Honor, that it's I, a different level of responsibility. I owe, I owe it to 37 men who gave their lives for me. Um, they are the reason why I'm here. They took a spot that I very easily could have taken. And um, that's holy to me. That sacrifice is holy. The men that I served with on that stage that I love, um, I, I want more people to uh, understand that there's something more important in this world than ourselves. And if we all can look at our brothers and sisters and our communities and realize that if we all pulled on the same side, what America could do, it would be incredible. And I'd like to see America return to that. David Bellavia, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I really appreciate your service and our time being here with us today. Um, and we know you'll have a very busy Veterans Day, Veterans Month, but happy early birthday to you as thank well. You. Thank you so much to all of you for being here. If you'd like to see a full recap of this, you can go to our website, WashingtonPostLive.com. You can also find out information about upcoming programs. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.